0: God in His Word blessed us with four Gospels, four accounts of His life's Son. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very much alike. The fourth Gospel, which is perhaps the most beloved, is very different from the first three. The reason is, is not only is it written by an eyewitness, that is also true of Matthew's Gospel, but it's written by an eyewitness who is very close to Jesus. In John's gospel alone, you are occasionally told what the Lord Himself was thinking as He lived through things. You're given quiet insight, and you're allowed to sit in private conversations that Jesus had, for instance, with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where Jesus told that religious leader, you must be born again. Your religious accomplishments will do you no good. In John's gospel, of course, we meet Jesus preeminently, supremely, and above all, the gospel of Jesus is, of course, about Jesus. We also meet John himself, and John refers to him with, with, to himself with a little literary flair as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It is John who is physically nearest to Jesus at the Last Supper, who leans in close against Jesus and alone is told, who the betrayer is that sits with him at the table on the night that Jesus was arrested. But you also meet my favorite disciple in John's gospel. You meet Peter. And I love Peter because I relate to him much more easily than any of the others, especially John. John is insightful and thoughtful. John is deep and evidently tenderhearted. Peter, as you're going to see, is impulsive, sometimes reckless, too quick to promise what he intends to do because he does not yet know himself as Jesus always has known Peter. You would think at John, when you come to the end of John's gospel, that John chapter 20 would be a fitting place to end it. If you'll open your Bibles with me in John chapter 20, I'd like to show you what I mean. John chapter 20, the very last paragraph tells us this. John 20, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, what's it say? life in His name. There's John's purpose. John says, Jesus did many other things which I cannot and will not tell you here, but I've written to you so that you will know who Jesus is, so that you will believe He is the Son of God that was promised, and here's the offer, here's the gift, here's what it means to be born again. If you trust Jesus, you will have eternal life. You'll have life in His name. And that seems like a great place to end the gospel, but you'll notice there's a whole other chapter. And the reason for that is one of the most encouraging things that Jesus ever taught us. This story, the final story, is not an appendix. If you were of a literary mind, you might call it an epilogue. It's a quiet, personal, and for Peter at moments, a painful story to tell you something about Jesus that you otherwise may have doubted. Because in John's gospel, as we follow the life of Jesus, we discover that the life of Jesus itself is interwoven with the life of this impetuous (laughs) disciple. In John chapter 1, we learn that Peter has a brother named Andrew, and Andrew is already a disciple, but not yet of Jesus. Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist. A prophet sent ahead of Jesus to prepare people for Jesus' arrival. And according to John chapter 1 verse 29, one day John stopped preaching and seeing Jesus among the crowd said, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And later, while John the Baptist stood with his disciple Andrew and another man, he said again, look, this is the Lamb of God. And Andrew, understanding the significance and understanding perhaps something with the same clarity that John the Baptist did, turned away from following John the Baptist and that day started following Jesus. Then John reports that Andrew went and found his brother Peter. And Andrew does what Andrew always does in John's gospel. Andrew is always and only bringing people to Jesus And the day Jesus met Peter, he said, your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you the Rock. What a great nickname that must have been for Peter. In two languages, Hebrew or Aramaic and Greek, Peter is known as the Rock. As you're going to discover, that may have been in part because of his physical strength but I think more and certainly that's how Peter must have taken it. It is this strength of action, this willing physical courage, this willingness to get out ahead of the others and not only speak, but also act. Peter very evidently embraces Hick's nickname and begins to follow Jesus. In John chapter 6, we meet, the, we meet the disciples in the heat of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus, we're told elsewhere, takes and designs a day apart for his exhausted disciples and wants to give them a day of rest. Instead, a crowd ends up following them, and Peter is among those who are amazed. When Jesus steps out of a boat, teaches a crowd of 5,000 men, which counting women and children was certainly at least 15,000 people, probably 20,000 And at the end of the day, the disciples, weary of the crowd, tell Jesus, enough's enough, send these people home. And Jesus tells them instead, you're going to feed them. There's a quiet argument between the disciples and their Lord, but Peter witnesses along with the other disciples because that was the point of the miracle. How Jesus takes the sack lunch that his brother Andrew found a little boy to have in the crowd and Andrew brings the boy to Jesus. There's five little pieces of bread and two little fish and Jesus takes that and the the gospel's very pointed. Jesus prays over that little meal and distributes it to the disciples so that they can feed the crowd. Learning is happening. Peter is changing the rock His name from the beginning appears to be growing stronger. And all the Gospels are long introductions to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His some three years of public ministry are told rather quickly, and when it comes down to His arrest and His death and His resurrection, everything slows down because this is the reason that Jesus came for us. In John chapter 13, John gives us a detailed description of how Jesus, using the miraculous power of God himself, arranges for a supper in an upper room so that they can celebrate the Passover together. Everything was put in place. Everything was provided by Jesus except for one important person. For this most important of meals, there should have been a servant present to wash everyone's feet before they dined together and remembered the exodus. But there wasn't. And John doesn't spell it out, but it's as clear as crystal in the culture of the time that 12 men made a conscious decision. They walked by the basin of water and the towel provided, but finding no servant for that menial, embarrassing task, Twelve men made a decision. I'm not sure who's going to wash feet tonight, but it won't be me. And they sit at the table with the quiet cultural pressure of this this enormously important meal with their filthy, dusty feet beneath them. To their horror, without saying a word, Jesus stands up. He takes the garments and the tool of the servants and he begins to do what? they should have done, until he gets to Peter. Peter, the rock, finds his voice and says to Jesus, Lord, you're washing my feet? Not going to happen. And Jesus, speaking in in symbols and the language of discipleship, says to Peter, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. In other words, your forgiveness and your life depend upon me. Peter, always an overreactor, another reason I relate so well to him, says, Lord, if it's like that, then let's not stop with my feet. Let's have a whole bath, wash my head too. <laughs> Jesus tells them that that's not necessary, finishes the menial task of the servant, serves them as the Lord's Supper because he took the Passover and explained that all along it had been a picture of his body and his blood shed to forgive their sins and give them eternal life. And then Judas the traitor goes out into the night. Jesus knows it all along, toward the end of the 13th Gospel of John, Jesus begins to explain in the presence of the traitor that he would be betrayed. And a quiet argument and discussion begins to occur among the disciples that it's evident that it occurs to them that any one of them could be capable of this except for the one who actually did it, Judas. And Jesus says, I'm going ahead of you now. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me. And Peter, ever impetuous, the rock says, Lord, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus graciously receives that and says, Peter, not only are you not going to follow me, tonight you're going to deny me. Peter doesn't know what to make of that the farthest thing from his mind is betraying or denying his Lord. They go out to the garden and Peter tries to live up to his word when wicked men come with torches and lanterns and weapons to arrest the light of the world and the creator of the entire universe. Peter lunges forward and tries to kill a man. He only succeeds in hacking off one ear. Jesus puts a stop to the violence Heals the man, and then, Lamb of God that he always was, he willingly goes along with his captors. John and Peter, now beginning to feel the enormity of the moment and perhaps the limit of their own strength, follow Jesus. This leads them into a place with a lot of people very close to the center of power, and there, Hardly, I'm sure, without realizing it, beside a coal fire that the crowd had built to keep themselves warm, Peter huddles there to warm himself against a cold night, and to his surprise and shame, he hears himself deny his Lord three times, once at the gate, twice at the fire, made with coals. Then he weeps bitterly. And as far as Peter can imagine, and as I'm sure anybody would believe, for Peter, his forgiveness and his life may continue, but his apostleship, his calling, his blessing to be one among twelve and one of them an imposter all along, that's over. He denied the Lord. When the Lord needed strength and encouragement from his beloved disciples most the rock turned out to crack and to crumble that's why the epilogue of john is the 21st chapter let's read it together after this after his resurrection after appearing to his disciples after giving them the holy spirit and telling them that He was sending them in the same way the Father had sent Him. After all this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberius. That's the more, it's known by a more familiar name, the Sea of Galilee, but it's the same place. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberius, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So if you're counting, that's seven. Of the eleven true apostles, seven have gone fishing. And some Bible students read this as complete failure, complete dereliction of duty. I don't take it. Quite that way. I don't judge them quite this harshly, but whatever they're doing, they're not on mission with Jesus. They have seen the risen Lord, they have been given the Holy Spirit, and they're not telling anybody about it. Peter, the leader of the pack, the first name on the list, the commercial fisherman who once had his own vessel, he's fishing. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. There's the leadership, there's the rock. This time leading them not closer to Jesus, but into the Sea of Galilee to ply his old trade. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And if you're not familiar with the fishing customs of the day, night was when they should have been fishing. What normally happened, according to people who have studied the matter, and we know a great deal about it, in fact, if you go to Israel, you can find a boat (coughs) dating back to the first century, about 28 feet long and 8 feet wide. In other words, they would have been packed in there if they were in just one boat. What normally would happen is they'd take two boats, and let down nets, and make a trap around the school of fish, and then cast a net over all of it, and together draw them out. All of this happened in the hours before dawn. That's when the fish were quietest, closest together, and easiest to find. But tonight, even with the professional among them, they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? It's an affectionate question and a little embarrassing for the professionals. We've worked all night. We don't have a thing. They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now this is pointless. The hour has passed. It's a single boat. They've tried these waters. There's nothing there, but perhaps in exhaustion, perhaps to humor the stranger on the beach, it says, so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, now again, who's that? This matters. That's John. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And here you see a character sketch of both men in one verse. John is always quicker to understand and believe. John sees an enormous trap of fish coming closer to the boat and says, There can only be one man on the beach who gave us that order. That has to be Jesus. What's Peter do? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, notice, he didn't understand it. He just heard his buddy say it. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now let's slow down just a minute. You ever get dressed to go swimming? What's happened here, the Greek word literally means naked, and probably what it meant because of the custom of the time is that Peter is just barely keeping minimal modesty. He's down to a loincloth, throwing this net all night, hauling it out of the water again and again and again, every time empty. Sweat is pouring off this man. His back is tired. His arms are aching. Now, the net is full. And John, perhaps alone among the disciples, immediately understands there can only be one man standing on a beach teaching us how to fish and giving us miraculous success. That has to be Jesus. And Peter wants to get to Jesus as quickly as he can, but he's nearly naked, so he gets dressed and throws himself into the water, leaving the others to deal with the catch. Look in verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I don't know if you've noticed that, but Peter swam a hundred yards wrapped in a coat. That's not easy. He's excited. He's happy to get there. When they got out on land, don't miss this, every detail matters. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. If you're reading the details, this tells you something about the rock. This helps you understand why Peter, though a fisherman and not a soldier, did not hesitate to take what weapon he had and try to kill a man to defend his Savior. This man's a beast. The other disciples are gaping at the catch they've made. Peter alone jumps onto the ship and 153 large fish and the dripping net holding them all. Peter hauls it out onto the beach. Jesus doesn't need their food. Food's already waiting. Verse 10 Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. He set the table, he made the fire, he even baked the bread. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And that's one of the strangest verses in John's Gospel. They're thunderstruck. They know quite well because he's revealed himself to them two other times. But this is just Jesus in ordinary life. This is Jesus not only eating with them, this is Jesus cooking for them. And they're so moved, they're so surprised, they're so overawed at how ordinary and miraculous and extraordinary all of this is at the same time, they don't want to talk to Him about who He is. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish He fed them the same way He had once fed 20,000. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead now comes the best and the most important part of the story. Because Jesus is now going to begin to deal personally with the failure that is Simon Peter. Let's step out of the first century and think about ourselves for a moment. Have you failed the Lord in your attempt to serve Him? Can you recall times where you told the Lord you were all in? And that whatever the cost and whatever anyone else did, that you knew Him and loved Him so much, knew how important He was and all that He had sacrificed and given to you. Have you ever been in a position to make great promises of love and loyalty and service to the one you call your Lord, Jesus Christ? That's what Peter did. And Peter just didn't stumble. Peter failed catastrophically. He denied knowing the Lord three times, once to a servant girl. Now, Jesus, his Lord, is going to bring it up. And he's going to bring it up beside a coal fire. Perhaps the last time that Peter had seen a coal fire outdoors was the night he decided to deny that he ever knew Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus is going to deal with the personal failure that is the so-called rock. And if you've ever failed Jesus, maybe you can take some comfort in watching what Jesus does when we fail Him. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, in other words, Simon the Rock, Simon, son of John, did you notice the nickname's gone? Now it's just your family name. This is not the time for nicknames. I'm the one that once called you a rock, but not this morning. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I wonder what Jesus is referring to because everything that has mattered Peter's whole life is around him. His fellow apostles are standing with him. Peter, you said that if everybody else betrayed me, you would die for me. You love me more than these men? Peter, you're a fisherman. You made your family living for generations on these shores. You love me more than these nets? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. He can't bring himself to say it with the same confidence he once did. Notice, he's very careful. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep said to him the third time simon son of john do you love me and you've been in church for a long time and maybe some of you have even i know some of you have taken a little greek you might have heard that there's a little word play in the greek and it's definitely there but i don't think that's the point i think the point doesn't depend upon the specific words that jesus is using for love has the fact that Jesus is painfully walking Peter through the only question that counts, and he's asking him the same thing three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? I believe that's true because of what John reports next. Peter was grieved, brokenhearted. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? and he said to him peter said to jesus lord you know everything you know that i love you jesus said to him truly jesus said to him feed my sheep truly truly i say to you when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted because this is a strong man peter has done everything he pleased his whole life to this point "'You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, "'but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands "'and another will dress you and carry you "'where you do not want to go.'" Now, what's this about? Well, Peter and all his fellow Jews at this time in history were so well acquainted with Roman crucifixion that the sight of a Roman cross with a Jew dying on it was common. Sometimes, as an act of state-sponsored terrorism, the Romans would line the roads with dying men all nailed to crosses. The death was so pagan, so inhumane, so brutal to speak of that the Jews started using a euphemism. Instead of using the hated word for crucifixion, they would say that someone had stretched out his arms. In other words... Jesus is promising Peter, Peter, the next time you're tested to the max, you'll be faithful. Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter's back in. Because if you're a failure, you need to know this, and we all are. Could we have pleased God in our own strength? Jesus would not have come. Even when Jesus does come, we still fail Him. There's not a disciple following the Lord who will not and has not failed Him. But you need to know that Jesus is the kind of Savior that comes back. And Jesus has painstakingly reenacted a scene reminiscent of picturing the scene of of Peter's greatest failure, and walked him through the crucial question, Peter, do you love me? Peter finally gives up and says, I don't know. You know everything. You tell me what you know. I'm tired of telling you what I believe and what I promise. You tell me what is true about me. Peter hears the words three times, take care of my flock. No wonder. Some 30 years after this happened, in the epistle that you and I have been studying, we read, Peter, 30 years after this morning, write this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, here's Peter's word to his fellow shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is where Peter learned how to be a shepherd. That's why he wrote before he was crucified to fellow shepherds 2,000 years later to me and my fellow shepherds, here's how you act under the eye of the good shepherd. Peter, you're back in. It's never been about your profession of faith confidence in yourself. It's never been about what you can promise me. It's only and always about what I can do as you follow me. He's back in. This should be the end of the story. But it's not. Because Peter is so much like me, so much like you. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's that again? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Can you relate to that? Peter's just being given a second blessing. His calling has been reinstated. His calling has been renewed. He's been told in every way possible, Peter, you're back. Just follow me this time. Don't make rash promises. Don't look at your own strength. Don't believe your nickname, even though I gave it to you. Look at me. Follow me. And Peter, unable to be quiet, perhaps without meaning to, I'm certain with no malice, looks behind them and finds John where John always is, close to Jesus. And he can't help himself. And he says, Lord, what about him? Comparison has killed the heart and discouraged the life of more Christians than anything else in ministry. Hard for you to enjoy your own blessings, your own calling, and the good you can do if you're continually comparing yourself to others. And he gets the right answer. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Never mind him. What difference does it make to you if he doesn't die until I come back? Look at Christians. Look at gossip. Look at rumors. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Peter hears. John closes his gospel. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What's this story about? This story, of course, is mostly about Jesus, but it's also about us. Because in your devotion and in your love for Jesus, however close you try to follow Him, you'll also fail Him. You should remember in those days, and if you're sitting in a season of discouragement and you have largely sidelined yourself from following after Jesus and serving others and sharing the gospel as Jesus once told you to do, you need to shake yourself out of that and realize that you're paradoxically, ironically, foolishly making it about yourself and not about Him. Because what is true is this, when we fail Jesus, who we are, what we've done, what we promise to do, none of that matters as much as who Jesus is. If you can take that into your heart, you can serve Jesus faithfully, not perfectly, but you can serve Him faithfully for the rest of your life. We ask the question, what would Jesus do? It's a good question, but here's one that is much better. Not what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus already done? What kind of person is Jesus? Who is He exactly? He is the Savior that goes to the cross for His disciples, and after His resurrection, personally finds the one who failed Him the most deeply. Serves him a meal and then walks him back through his restoration asking only this question, Peter, now that you've failed catastrophically, do you love me? Peter wisely gives up and says, Lord, I don't know as much as I once thought. You know everything. And right then, he's back. So, here's the lesson. Christian, fellow disciple, fellow failure in following jesus here's the permanent invitation from the one who took away the sin of the world and gave us his own eternal life follow jesus and jesus will show you what you'll do you follow Jesus. You stay close behind Him. Failures and all, half-heartedness and all, weakness and all. Don't believe what anyone else says about you. Don't even believe what you tell yourself about yourself and what you tell yourself about Jesus. You follow Him, and He'll show you what you will do, what you can do, and what you should as long as you embrace His grace and follow Him. Let's pray together. Just a quick question for my fellow failures as disciples. That doesn't apply to you. What I say to you won't do you any good. But if, like me, you once set out to follow Jesus, making great, grand promises of what life would be now that you knew Him, and you've come up short, Can I just invite you to stand in this story and see yourself in it? Jesus comes back for the failures. Shows them that it's never really been about what we can do or what we have done, what we promise even to do. It's always and only been about Him. His life, His death, His resurrection, His invitation then and now is you follow me. If you've been comparing yourself to others, stop. None of your business where I take that woman, where I take that man. You. You. You individually. You follow me. That's the invitation. So if you've been beating yourself up, if you've signed yourself up on the permanent list of failures, on those who once could have done and would have done for Jesus, but didn't, and won't because they failed. Take yourself off that list. See yourself instead with the life of Jesus and hear His voice again saying to you, follow me. And listen, if you don't know Him, this challenge, this invitation, this story is obviously in the Gospel of John for disciples of Jesus, but if you're not one of us, I'm inviting you in the name of Jesus. Jesus Himself is inviting you through His Spirit, through His active, living word. You come follow me. Friend, turn away from your sin, give up on yourself and start following Him. He'll save you. He promised to do so. Lord, hear.